Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We are going to, uh, we're talking about Kolisha, the, you know, prohibition, the, uh, you know, uh, well, maybe prohibition about a man hearing a woman's voice, which comes up prominently uh, in this episode with Yochai, the Haftarah teacher who doesn't want to teach Reut because she's a woman and she's sort of adamant, right, about like, I want to learn Haftarah. I'm reading, I'm not reading in front of men, I'm reading in front of women. He's like, never, you know, still can't do it. Um, I, you know, and he keeps saying like, lo matim, it doesn't feel appropriate or lo tzanu. It's not, it's, it, it's immodest. And she kind of keeps. I think he says, lo mekubal. And the only reason I remember that is because at Camp Ramah in California, that was told to us many times. That was the word. That was the wording that was used. Yeah. Well, about what? About reading? That it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be good for him to teach her because Zelome Kubal. Right. But you're not saying with this and this topic. You're just saying frequently that was a phrase that was used. It was used. It was used in this in the show. God. No. Yeah. That's what he said. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail you. I was just excited. No. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah, so we were talking about the parameters, and I said, you know, this is one of those topics. I feel like there's a number of topics when it comes to um, negia, you know, physical contact between the sexes, when it comes to kolisha, like, that will probably be coming back to in a variety of contexts, because it's, they're sort of big topics that kind of are are somewhat omnipresent. Kolisha is not omnipresent in this show, but I'm sure it'll be up here. Um, and, you know, we were talking about the parameters of of when that applies you know why it applies and you know we saw how the original torah sources speak about women singing you know miriam sings devorah deborah the prophet sings um and actually the reason that we have you know prohibition actually comes from shira shirim song of songs where the the man in the in the in the you know scenario in the parable or the poem, um, you know, says to the woman who he's courting, attracted to, whatever, that, um, you know, uh, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, because your voice is sweet. And from that idea of a woman's voice being sweet, Rashi says, you know, because it's described as being sweet, we learn from that that a woman's voice is desirable. And the word in the Hebrew in Shia Shirim is that her voice is arev, ayin resh vet, which in this context means sweet. And from that, we get a statement in, uh, in the Talmud in the name of Shmuel, uh, who says, kol beisha erva, right? It's a kind of a play on words because Shia Shirim uses the word arev, ayin resh vet, erva is ayin resh vav, hey, but it's sort of the same the same kind of word and this idea that a woman's voice is like erva, is like nakedness because it's attractive, it's going to prevent a man from, you know, being able to focus on what he's supposed to do, you know, and there's a question about whether this is only if he's like reading Shema or like doing other religious things or if it's sort of a universal prohibition. And there's a spectrum of views around it, but Generally, we see, you know, there's a, a story, you know, of uh, Rav Yehuda won't say hi to Yalta because he doesn't want to say hi and she's hers to say hi back to him because that would be Kolisha, right? That's kind of the extreme, the extreme version. Um, but elsewhere, we see, you know, com- conversations about um, like Zmirot around the Shabbat table or like women singing behind the Mechitza and Shul or like all these kinds of contexts. And like in which cases does Kolisha apply? In which cases is it problematic problematic for men to hear? Um, and, and two of the things that we saw come up in some of the sources is that if it's multiple people singing and the woman isn't like, oh, it's 100% about the weakness of men. Yeah, <laughs> Karen, that's 100%. Um, and like with all of these things, right? It's, a, it's not about women doing anything wrong. It's about men being unable to maintain their focus on what they're supposed to focus on because they're, you know, men. Because they're, they're distracted. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so a couple of things that we saw, we saw for one that if it's, and this comes up with Reut, you know, that if it's multiple people singing, you know, if, if, a, if 
the man and woman are singing together, then you can't easily differentiate the voices. And so maybe that makes it okay. Rav Avadia Yosef, the former chief rabbi of Israel, they said that, you know, in his house, women and men sang Zmiro together, family, but like they sang Zmiro together. And, and he said, as long as, you know, we're all singing together and no one is, no woman is singing at a higher pitch or like, you know, stronger strength than other people to where like her voice really stands out, it's fine. Um, and similarly, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, kind of like the father of modern orthodoxy in Germany and, and Rav Hildesheimer back also in Germany talked about how, you know, at their tables, women would sing Zmiro t- together with the men, but again, the togetherness and the context of it being kind of religious-ish singing makes it different than, you know, Madonna. Um, <laughs> I remember, I bring that example because I don't know if other people know Rabbi Jordan Soffer. I feel like Rebecca might know him, but he, he's a rabbi. Uh, I grew up at Camp Ramah with him, and he also went to my yeshiva, Yeshiva Chovei Torah. And I remember him telling a story that someone invited him to a Madonna concert when he was in rabbinical school. And he said, he was like, no, nah, no, thanks for the invitation, I'm not going to go. And someone responded, and, and the other person responded and said, you know, why not? And he said, oh, because of Koli Shah. And the person was like, really? Like, you care about Koli Shah? Side note, my brother-in-law, Joel, who Rabbi Shah knows very well, is pretty strict about Koli Shah, with, you know, in any case. Um, but the, you know, the person was like, really? You know, like, which is pretty liberal. They care about Koli Shah. And he's like, look, when you think about what Koli Shah is supposed to be about, about like a woman's voice being seductive and, and all of that, he's like, Madonna, that's like exactly what she's trying to do. Like, it's like, even, even if I'm not strict on it in general, there are cases that are like, okay, fine. That's exactly what's going on here. Um, but like singing as mirrored around a Shabbos table, maybe not. But Rabbi Pernick, this segment is actually dealing with something a little different in that she wants to learn the Haftorah and Torah reading, right. which, is, which is a wholly more serious segment for a woman than just singing. Correct. So in this case, we're talking about Haftorah, though she did mention Torah reading. That's its own <laughs> its own separate class that I'm sure I imagine. Again, I haven't seen much of Sri Game Pass where we are now. I imagine that's something that might come up, but women reading Torah is its own its own thing. Haftarah is a little bit different. Um, yeah, Rabbi Shatz. But oh no good. Um I can we just like take approximately eight steps back and just like explain what I just I've had a few comments that people are just confused what we're talking about. Sure. You can do that or I can do that, but like, let's just give a little bit why of background. You, yeah, for- why, why don't you go ahead and do that? Because I've been talking a lot. Okay. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so this idea of Kolisha that Rai Pernick just explained to everybody comes up in this week's, I'll just say this week's Parsha, this week's episode, <laughs> actually also, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, in this week's episode, because when exactly what Eileen was just mentioning, that when she goes to say that she wants to learn the Haftarah, that even though it's just going to be in front of women, he seems to have some kind of problem with it. And he he looks up in the sources if it's okay, and he's not really so sure. And we, the the viewers, seem to think that maybe it has something to do with the fact that that they'll be spending more time together or that he thinks that it'll be inappropriate for those reasons. But, but really it's because of what Rabbi Pernick was just describing, which is that a woman's voice more so than a man's voice, though there are also sources for why a woman alone shouldn't listen to a man's voice. Um, that a woman's voice is seen as seductive and as something that could, could, um, could create a situation in which a man is unable to focus if it's in a a uh, prayer setting, right? If it's in like a shul setting or a situation in which a man is left to feel uncomfortable or even have inappropriate thoughts. That's always my favorite when the rabbis are like, but they could have inappropriate thoughts and you control their brain. So clearly don't do anything. Um, so this idea here is that women wouldn't sing or use their voices in such a way that somehow the man would be affected in any kind of mental, physical, spiritual way. Um, so those of you who are confused, are you less confused now? Does this make more sense? Just nod if you are getting more information. Yeah, okay. Um, why is Haftarah different? 
like Christian people who have thoughts. I don't know what that means, but I can tell you why Haftarah is different. Oh, you're still typing. Okay. Um, it, Rypernik might have more information on this than I do. I, the reason that Haftarah, in my opinion, is different is because the sources specifically say Torah or Shema or Kriyat Shema. They don't actually speak to the idea of reading from the prophets. So it could be seen as different. Like there are more modern Orthodox shows in Los Angeles for when a girl decides to become a bat mitzvah, she has a service, whether or not that modern Orthodox shul is, um, is liberal enough to have men also in the room, or if it's just a, a woman's service, but the girl would come before again, whichever, um, community it is, and it would be able to potentially read the Haftarah, but also be able to give a drush. So that seems to be, and again, Rai Pernick knows more about this world than I do, but that seems to be something that is kind of more available and more lenient in terms of women's participation because the sources don't mention it as a thing that they cannot do. However, the conversation that we're having is this kind of uh, bigger umbrella issue of Kolisha, of just hearing a woman's voice, period, as opposed to around what. Um, do you have other thoughts on that? Or was that kind um, of... Yeah, no, I mean, so... With regard to Haftarah, you know, I was looking if there were sources that speak to Kolisha oh yeah, specifically with Haftarah. There are none. There are none. There's nothing I could find also. Okay, so we're, we both were unable to find anything. Um, when we think about parts of a prayer service, you know, so there's leading davening. There's like being the shaliach tibor or the yeah, shots, yeah. you know, as we like to say. Very good. Um, yeah, so that has its own reasons why in an Orthodox setting, women won't lead for men, which is which is related to the obligations of prayer, that men are obligated to pray three times a day. Women generally are not seen as having an obligation to pray three times a day. Someone who has an oblig- who doesn't have an obligation can't fulfill for someone who does have an obligation. So that's why when it comes to prayers, women don't lead for men. That's So it's not Kolisha, it's actually about fulfilling a mitzvah for some, you know, for something that for you is optional and for someone else is mandatory. Then there's Torah reading, which is actually a communal obligation. It's not an obligation on any individual to read Torah, but it's an obligation on the community to hear the Torah read. So there are what are called partnership minyanim, which some people might've heard of, which are places that basically take the halakha, the Jewish law, kind of as far as, as it can go. Okay. So, uh, right, so talking about uh, Michael saying at the Shah, women, girls can read both Torah and Haftarah in a women's service and give a dress in front of the whole congregation. So also in partnership minyanim, which are like sort of orthodox, but like really on the far edges of orthodoxy, you know, women will lead, for example, Psuke de Zimra and Kabbalat Shabbat, Kabbalat Shabbat but not Shacharit Mincha, Musaf, Mariv you know, because those are things where you're fulfilling the obligation for someone else. And they will read Torah because, again, the, the obligation of Torah reading is an obligation on the community. And it even says in in the Gemara, in Masech um, Megillah, I took this source out because we weren't talking about Torah reading specifically, but it says in the Gemara that, you know, anyone can be called up for the seven aliyot, including women or and children, but we don't call up women because of kavodat zibor, because of respect for the community. So that's a whole argument in its own right around Torah reading. Haftarah is different because Haftarah is a custom that we have to read from the prophets. It's not, it has no halachic status, like you're not fulfilling an obligation by reading Haftarah. So there's greater leniencies around Haftarah than either Torah reading or leading the prayer service. And and there are places that still hold by this, right? There are communities in which the Haftarah is seen as something that is that is more available, right, to, to girls and to their families than a Torah service would be, especially if you're in a more um, liberal, I guess, a modern Orthodox community where you actually might be able to do that also in front of the whole community and not just in a separate minyan that you would create for women. Um, I'll just share this. It has nothing to do with Haftarah, but it has to do with women's voices. One of my teachers from Ziegler 
from Mimi Feigelson, who many of you know, or at least have heard the name of. Um, she was one of the first female Orthodox um, rabbis who was ordained by Rabbi Shlomo Kalibach. And she never read Torah when we were in rabbinical school because she didn't read in the context of a mixed minion where there were men and women. And when I was in Israel, I was visiting for something and she told us, those of us who were in town, she told us that she would be reading Torah in a women's minion. And the females in, in rabbinical school with me and I went to this and it was extremely emotional to be able to see a teacher who has taught you so much Torah, but for whom never shared her voice in reading Torah in front of the community, to actually hear her read Torah for the first time was just remarkable. And so I just want to add that a lot of this conversation, I'm sure, is coming across as extremely sexist or a way that is silencing women's voices. And I just want you to know that even as a person who, who doesn't find myself in those kinds of contexts regularly, that there are ways in which women who are not using their voices in mixed settings are using their voices in very profound and very beautiful ways in these women's minyanim. So I don't want it to sound like it's not happening at all. Um, it just might not be happening in front of us. So I wanted to, I wanted to share that story. But I think, oh, Michael, you, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to add yeah. one quick, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay, I'll add a quick um, little caveat to that. So there, you might have noticed that there's a, a little conversation there where Ifat says to her, ooh, it's like something like, why don't you go you know, read with the American feminists and she, you know, she responds like, I can't say their accents, whatever. So in that Jerusalem bubble, so there's a, a, a well-known minion called Shira Hadasha, which is largely American and is that partnership minion style that I was talking about of, you know, where women will read, will lead Kabbalat Shabbat, men will lead Mariv, women will like read Torah there, but it's, and that's actually sort of where I, the, or origins of partnership minyanim are are sort of in that context, and again, it's a very American, you know, American. Yeah. Community, yeah. Their newsletter was the only place that I found any sources on women reading Haftorah. Oh, really? When I was looking for sources, that was the only place I found. Um, but you know, rude to say no. That's not what I'm doing. You know, like they don't explicitly talk about Shira Chadashah, but I think it's sort of in code. Um, and she's like, no, I'm doing a women's minion. So, so this is before my time, but back. You know, in the in the seventies, at least one such partnership minion norm says in in L.A. and yeah, so uh, and sometimes they'll require ten men, ten women. Sometimes they don't. Um, sort of different minion even have different standards with that. But when this sort of originated, I think in the seventies, it began with women's tefillah groups. That was the or that was the first thing where women said, you know, we can't read in front of men, fine, we're going to start our own tefillah groups that are just women, and this type that Rabbi Schatz was talking about with Red Mimi, and, you know, we're going to do it in that way, and it's just women reading for women, we'll read Torah, we'll read Haftarah, we can even need davening, because we're not doing it for men, we're doing it for one another. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that was kind of the first step. Um, and then, over time, it sort of moved to people say, well, what, how, you know, we don't want to just be doing it for women, we want to do it for men, and so that's sort of the next stage in the progression was the partnership in your name there. Yeah, uh, Hugo, is that a yeah, oh, No, I we just wanted to tell you that several years ago when we were in Jerusalem, we actually went to Shihadashah and it was absolutely the most amazing and most beautiful service that we had attended in a very, very long time, and certainly in Jerusalem, at least for my part. Nice. For my part. They have beautiful, beautiful harmonies. They know how to sing really well in that community. Someone who enjoys that, it's a great place to go. Yeah. Um, Michael, you had something to say earlier. Do you want to still share? Yeah. uh, A number of the folks at KJ in New York, which is a traditional Orthodox synagogue, when I was there one Shabbat, I was told that, and Rabbi Josh must know about this, and maybe it's a partnership minion, but there are a couple of minions, at least in New York City, where men and women sit on different. There's still effectively a mechitza, but they both get called to the Torah, have aliyot, and then they go back to each side. I guess it's, as Rabbi Joshua said, it's right at the edge of modern orthodoxy. Right. 
Yeah, so those are partnership minyanim. In partnership minyanim, there's still a mechitza. There's still yeah. a mechitza, and there's people are are sitting, you know, on, on opposite sides. But women, someone from the women's side comes up to do certain things. Um, you know, men come up for certain things, and Aliyot go back and forth. Haftarah goes back and forth yeah. between them. So yeah, um, you see a number of those in larger cities. It's not one of a rabbi of mine. Um, one, you know, once commented that he said, you know, I'll be okay with partnership minyanim when I see a partnership minyan that actually functions as a synagogue and has like daily minyanim and like does, yeah, because usually they're sort of once a month, sometimes more than that, but like they really typically function as a minyan, but not as like a shul. Like it's, you know, it's usually kind of people who don't, often younger people who don't want the commitments of a, of a shul, but want somewhere to go on Friday night and have this kind of singing. So. Yeah, what's, that's what I had been told by this fellow at KJ, that it was a very uh, occasional type of thing, maybe once a month, every couple of weeks, right. but not an actual synagogue. But there are some. There's one in uh, in Manhattan on the Upper West Side called, I'm forgetting, but it, which is huge. I mean, they have like 150 people at every Shabbos, I'm forget, it's, and they meet in a gym. Not right now, probably. But yeah, so there, some of them are large. Some of them are smaller. Um. Okay, so do we do we want to just go back for a second to like the Koli Shah piece? For sure. Okay. Um, so I just want to say quickly about Koli Shah that that one of the things that I think is um, as a person who sings, <laughs> the thing that's hardest about Koli Shah is that often, and there's a there's a source on this that if I can find it quickly, I'll share it. But that you know, women were given a voice. They were given a way of use, utilizing their vocal cords, whether it's to speak or to sing. And it wasn't to seduce men. That wasn't what our voices were given to us for. And there is there is something that that is inherently um, difficult about women being told that they can't use something that they were given, such as their voice, just like being told you can't use your legs because it's going to affect someone else. And I think one of the things that Rayut did really beautifully in this episode was that she fought for that. She said, no, I'm doing this in a way that is completely sneeze, right? I'm doing this in a way that is not going to make anybody uncomfortable. You have to get over the fact that you're known as the best teacher and that I want to learn from you and I want to know how to do this so that I can do it for future generations um, in memory of my father. So uh, he, he, t- he like gives in a little bit um, when he finds out that it's in memory of her father, just like he had just shared that his father had died. And so they kind of, you know, ease into it a little bit. But you notice that she starts singing and he freaks out. And he's like, no, 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 I cannot, I cannot listen to your voice. And nothing happened. I mean, there's nothing happening. She's just singing. But then they realize, and this was the thing that what Rabbi Pernick said, and I started to chuckle, because I think that there's, there's something about Kolisha that makes it seem as though, okay, if a man and a woman sang together, that's fine because the woman will just be quieter and demure and very feminine and a man will just share his voice in the way that a man's supposed to. And that's not, that's not what it should be about, right? If, the, if a man and a woman are going to sing together, they're going to sing together. It shouldn't be, but I have to be louder than you. And I think that she was willing to give in to that because that was the only way it was going to happen. But I just wanted to point that out, that there is something very difficult about women being told they can't use something that was given to them um, and that it's because men just can't control themselves. So I don't know, Rai Parnik, if that was something that you talked about or if that was a source that you talked about, but I just wanted to bring that up. And now um, I'm to Rabbi Parnick, so I'm talking to you, Josh. You can answer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah no, and we talked to, uh, so we, we did speak about that a little bit, and but, you know, more in the context of like Zmirot around the Shabbat table where, you know, they said, Rav Avadya said, you know, people sing at his table, but it was like, as long as no one, no woman, I guess, is being louder. I guess if a man is being louder, no one, it's not an issue, right? But it, But that point about, you know, as you're saying, you know, women are given this gift, you know, and, and that's sort of how it's described in Song of Songs and Shirashim. Women have beautiful voices and men don't, is essentially what it says, what Rashi says there. And it's like, okay. And like, because 
they have these beautiful voices. Now we need to put a cage on it so that it doesn't affect men, right? Like it's kind of, you know, even more than other issues. And again, it's not saying it couldn't be used at all. It's just, you know, saying in, you know, around men that men shouldn't be listening for this, but it's certainly, like you said, if you're saying that women, that men shouldn't be listening to women singing, then that ends up impacting the kinds of settings in which women can sing because in many places there's going to be men there, right? So it, it does certainly create that um, that difficulty for women who enjoy singing, that there's sort of limited opportunities to do that in, a, in an orthodox context. It was also interesting that he, that he said, um, he said, I'm religious, and she said, so am I, right? As yeah. if, if she was religious, she wouldn't have even begun to ask the question. And I really liked that because I think that the idea of being religious or being in a denomination, just she pushes that envelope a little bit by saying like, I'm I'm also religious. Like you can't tell me that I'm not religious just because I asked to do something that you've never been asked before. Um, and I and I appreciate that because you can't tell just by looking at someone, you know, <laughs> what their practices are around Kolisha of all things. Um, yeah. Anybody have any comments or questions or thoughts on right. that? I was wondering if the uh, rabbi who was teaching her eventually whether he had any interest in her because when she met him the first time and she left, he went to I think the door or the window and followed her out, you know, uh, I mean, look, look to the uh, uh, door hole or whatever. And, and so I'm just wondering if he was just curious or maybe he never met too many women before. Or something like that. Yeah. First of all, I don't think he's a rabbi, which I'm not yeah, just okay. correcting you, but yes. I just want to make it clear because I think right. that, I, I think that there is something um, mm-hmm. maybe even better <laughs> about the fact that he's not a rabbi in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, just based on, I'm sure we'll talk more about Yichud and stuff, but I think that that would become more complicated if he was held to a different standard than just a guy who knows trope. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a TV show and I, I don't know. I assume that, yes, he probably starts to have some kind of affection for the fact that she was really adamant about wanting to learn from him. She told him he was the best teacher, right? She she puffs him up. And so, you know, why not like her a little bit based on that? Um, but I also think that because the show, unlike this class, isn't going into the halachic pieces here, that this idea of kolisha is supposed to be something that is seductive. And so if they want their audience to, to imagine that without having a class in kolisha, then his approach to the window to watch her walk to her motorcycle um, is is a sweet way of people understanding that he is somehow becoming more attracted to her by her voice and her intrigue with with learning Torah. And I'll also just note, and this will come up when we talk about negia also, like physical contact, that there is a differentiation between someone who's who you're attracted to versus you know someone who is of a different generation, you know, married, right? Like all these kinds of things that, um, you know, hearing someone who's 40 years older than you and married with kids and grandkids singing, like doesn't have the same, or with Nagia, when it comes to touching, it's the same kind of thing. Like some people will say, no, I won't, I won't listen to any woman sing and I won't touch any, any woman. Um, but when you actually look at the halakhic sources, it's actually, it's not so clear. It's sort of things that are um, like touch that's, that's sort of seductive in some way. You know, same thing with the voice. Like it's right. It comes from this vote, this Shira Shirim, this song of songs thing about the man seeking this woman's seductive voice, which is clearly a romantic relationship, even though we understand it as being, you know, uh, God in Israel seduction, but you know, we, it's, it's a different kind of thing. So like here, we certainly see it where, um, yeah, they're like contemporary, similar age, both religious, in an apartment together, singing. Like that is different than, you know, going to a concert of someone who's older and, and sitting a distance away. Like it's just a very Madonna. Different Madonna is different because Madonna is intentionally seductive. But, uh, you know, 
Jewish choral music is different, I would say. Ah, mm, interesting. Um, oh, I was just going to say something. You totally threw me off. Um, okay, AJ had a question, and then maybe I'll remember. Well, it's a bit of a complicated question. One quick comment to Robert regarding his mentioning of the window. Um, because it's a visual medium, um, it's an interesting allusion to the an ancient uh, representation of the woman at the window and a bit of a gender role reversal. You, instead of a woman at the window, mm. you have a man at the window. So I don't know if that was intentional on the part of the producers or, or someone else in the production uh, uh, area, but uh, potentially because they like to do stuff like that. My question regards history and rabbinic history. Um, and I'll start, I don't want to carry you down a Socratic path here, so let me just confess the whole question. I wanted to start with, was there a time difference between the reasoning of the honor of the community versus the seductiveness of a woman's voice? In other words, you have Kolisha, the seductiveness, but you also have the whole presence of women in public uh, being a, an affront to the honor of the community. Were those two decisions made at different times or at about the same time? And, and where I'm, the thread I'm pulling here is with regard to um, how it's being taught in the Yeshivot. And um, I don't know, you probably do get a, quite a bit of history, but maybe not this kind of history. Um, I'm wondering whether um, we have a, a, an understanding of when, what, is somebody doing any kind of work in terms of trying to ferret out how this misogyny, and I'm going to call it what it was because, because I'm going to allege uh, that it's Hellenistic value systems that were in place in the Mediterranean, greater Mediterranean area at the time that rabbinic Judaism first began and was trying to reach back and, and assert its position of respectability and authority out of you know the, the common value system with the dominant power structure being completely male in a Hellenistic world, not yeah. so much in a Roman world and certainly not in a Persian world. So, so I'm, I'm yeah. just, is anybody, have you heard, were you taught this in, in rabbinic school or did you get any of that? Is there some historian out there that I don't know about yet that I'd love to read? I mean, I'm sure there are people, there are certainly people who are, who are examining that from a historical lens. You know, the the idea about anyone being called up to the Torah, but women not being called up because of Kavod at Sibor, especially the community, that comes from a Tosefta, which is Mishnaic era. So that's, you know, second century, the first two centuries in Israel, so under Roman auspices. Um, the idea about a woman's voice being erva, being sort of pseudo-nakedness, comes from Shmuel, who's an Amora. So that's already in Babylonia. Um, so you're right, you know, to think about the different contexts in which they find themselves. I think generally speaking, for sure, Judaism is always in conversation with the cultures in which it finds itself, right? Always. And I think the Torah and Tanakh generally are, are sort of, um, are often, uh, what was the word I'm looking for? Subversive, that, you know, having someone like Deborah the prophet and having Barak say, you know, I'm not going to battle unless you come with me. And her saying, well, if I come with you, everyone's going to say a woman won, won the war. And Barak saying back to her, I don't care. I can't go unless you come with me, right? Like it clearly, you know, and the text says that explicitly and it's, it's clearly acknowledging a value system in the world in which they live, in which a man would be seen as emasculated because a woman was necessary to come with him to battle. And he says, you know, 
I don't care. I need you. And it's true. You know, she and, and then Yael ends up killing Cicero, right? Yeah. So the Torah is just a joke. There was a joke embedded in that because ultimately it wasn't, you know, they weren't talking about Devorah, they were talking about Yael, but anyway, I get, yeah, I get but, you know, so, so are yeah. you saying that it's really second century BCE or CE? C-E. Thank Common you. Era. Um, and then Babylonia. So you're going back to well, we could go back to fifth century, but probably more recent than that. Shmuel is like an early Amora, so he's probably th- third or fourth third, century, third or fourth century of the Common Era. Yeah. So yeah, but for sure, I mean, I think Judaism is never none of this ever exists in a vacuum. It's always in conversation with the local customs and norms. Always. So yes, I would agree with that. Um, and I'm not a historian enough to know how the difference between Roman and Greek and Babylonian values impacts the the ways that um, the Jewish rabbinic sources discuss these things. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a question that was put in the chat, and I'm happy to answer it unless you would like to. Um, so Bonnie said, "What thinking and or commentary is there by the sages on actions that men can take in order to maintain or regain focus? You definitely should answer this." or regain focus if necessary so that women do not have to be prevented from their normal and natural actions, such as singing. You want to take I'll that? let you take that one. You can take that one. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> um, there isn't really, I, the, there is, there, um, Bonnie, first of all, You'll be in my class tomorrow, and I'm going to bring some of these sources. So um, I, you can, we can talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. But there are sources that do say that that men's voices. Oh, this is what I was going to say before you made the the Jewish choral comment. Um, that you know, when I was studying uh, music in college, I studied with men whose voices were much more beautiful than women's. Um, and that's just preference, obviously. I can't I can't say that everyone agreed with me, but I think that there, there are many ways in which people prefer one kind of singing over another. And for some people, that's what they grew up listening to. For other people, it's just the tenor of someone's voice, no pun intended, in terms of what, what kind of range they sing in and all of that. So... There, there is something to be said for men's voices being just as beautiful, um, if not seductive. That's not what it says in Shir Hashirim, which is what Rai Pernick was um, talking about earlier. But when we talk about the, um, it's not commentary, it's, it's actual, well, actually, it might be commentaries, whatever. It's sources where there are sages who talk about how women also shouldn't pay that much attention to a man's voice. That, that they shouldn't go to like a, a male chorus concert or something, right? That they should not be surrounding themselves with just male voices either. Now, we don't hear that as predominantly for exactly the fact um, that Rabbi Pernick brought up earlier, which is it's not something that is going to distract women from something that they're obligated to, right? If women aren't obligated to daven the Shema or Daven period, then it doesn't matter if they are being taken to some beautiful place by some beautiful chazen's voice, right? There's no, there's no worry about that because they can give a few words and and it won't matter. But for a man, that's that's not the case. A man has to have kavana and has to daven those three services throughout the day, or else they haven't. Um, fulfilled an obligation that they have as as a man. So I know that doesn't answer your full question, Bonnie, but but there are ways in which our sages were aware of the fact that it's not just female voices that are beautiful. There are many females who have terrible voices, and if they sing, you're I mean that's going to do nothing for you. So there are ways in which this is definitely this is definitely able to go, kind of go across the genders. Um, it's just more spoken about in terms of female voices. Well, My question well, has much more to do with yeah. um, 
was there any thinking about, gee, I'm responsible for my own behavior. The women are not responsible for my behavior. And therefore, we need to come up with something from, that men can do so that we don't have to impose our will. Is oh. there any commentary about that? How can there not be? They have the same brain number of brain cells as we do. And they, sure. you know, their thinking is just as broad as ours. It, it seems strange to me that there would not be any commentary, or maybe they just didn't want it to be written down. No, so so much of the Talmud is focused on things that men can do to set to try to avoid putting them in, in situations where they're, you know, compromised, their thoughts are compromised, right? That's like a huge, huge topic in the Talmud. Um, so, there, you know, there, there's sort of almost two separate conversations to be had. One about women in front of men and, and you know it's again it's sort of more a restriction on men saying men shouldn't be in places where women are singing and we said of course then that ends up affecting women in terms of what kind of places they can sing in but it's framed in terms of men because you know the Talmud is written by men and in in many cases is written for men obviously certain you know areas are, are focused on women um Primarily, but in general, it's talking about men, and there's and there's, yeah. I mean, a ton of the Talmud is is a, around those things. And I mean, there was a great video a couple of years ago. Great, some people were very offended by it, but um, but Yonatan Razel, who's a fantastic Israeli singer, religious, was doing a concert for women, and the women there were dancing. He started dancing, and he covered his eyes if he like put tape on his eyes or like a blindfold or something like that and some people were like super upset about it and they're like oh this is terrible that he's doing this and other people were like this is beautiful like he's playing the piano and singing and like people are dancing and he's like okay like i i'm not going to stop playing because women are dancing i'm going to like cover my face so i'm not seeing women dancing but like not stop them from dancing you seem like you have a different response to that video than I did, Rebecca. But I thought it was like a I just, I'm not. I, I mean, great, great story. I'm not sure that, that 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 like is exactly what Bonnie will want to hear in terms of just the fact that I think <laughs> I think that that's still making it the woman's problem, right? Like a bunch of what he knew he was performing at a female concert i assume um or else he needs to fire his you know agent but he he knew what he was getting himself into so to to then put tape over his eyes in that kind of setting that is not not good i mean very entertaining story but not not good i think that one of the maybe better stories would be that that the um the idea of a machitza right, of not having men and women be, and in some places, the mechitza is one where you won't even hear the women. In other places, it's that you won't see the women. In other places, it's that there are a few trees and you can see everybody. But the idea of separation is such that you would have more kavana, you would have more intention in the way in which you are praying. And it's not it's not put there because men need it more than women, though there's obviously more of a nod to that in the sources that Rabbi Pernick was, was referring to, but also for women to be able to have their own space and their own... I, I, I really like Davni with the machitza, um, just because I get to be in my own space. And I think that that's something that, that it, if, if it's looked at in that way, as opposed to a a sexist separation, you can't be with the other gender, that is a way in which men can then be focused without having to worry on their prayers and the, and their section, their, you know, the things that are going on on their side. Um, but, but you're right, Bonnie. I mean, there's a lot of, we've only spoken so far <laughs> about things in which it's not so great to hear that men need to be, sorry, that women need to be uh, muted or somehow taken down from from their existence just so that men can can be better established in the world that they're supposed to be living in. It's not okay. And that is something that, 
you know, over generations, we are working at and making sure that that is something in the liberal world of Judaism that we are doing a better job at. But your frustration and your angst is is right on. And um, and I'll just add a quick story, and then Rai Pernick, you can either call on people or close, whatever you want. Um, when I was in rabbinical, uh, nope. When I was in college, I had started um, a an acapella group. It was a Jewish acapella group. It was mixed. There were men and women in it. Um, I happened to be very involved in a group, a, a Jewish organization called Aish. Gonna have that conversation another time. Um, and I was very close with the Aish rabbi and his wife and their kids. And. My acapella group wanted to go to their home to sing for Hanukkah. So we did. They were very excited about it. They had, because it's a mixed group. Remember, there are men and women. They had us come. They were very excited about it. And the one thing that I forgot, or maybe didn't even know at the time, I don't know. The one thing that I forgot was that I sang a solo for a song that, you know, I, I have sung a million times and never gave any thought to it. We were in their living room. I started to sing and he put his hands over his ears and I will never forget that moment because I didn't care if he didn't like my voice. I didn't care any about any of that, but he was such a, he could have left the room and I would have felt better about it. It was such a visceral reaction to hearing just my voice. It was so painful, so painful. And I love the guy. I still think very highly of him. I That didn't change my perception of him as a human. But I do think that there are ways in which we can go about being more conscientious and more aware of this, both me as the singer and also he as the listener, to be able to say, this is not going to be something I'm comfortable with. I'm going to remove myself without making other people feel uncomfortable. So that... To me, that would be the way, that is the way, sorry, in which this episode resolves itself, that they figure out a way that he does not have to be uncomfortable, that she still gets to learn Haftarah, and that ultimately they are, they are learning from one another. So that's, I don't know, that's, that's my, that's my hope, that's my take on Kolisha, and um, yeah. He's still uncomfortable. What? He's still uncomfortable. I said he's still uncomfortable. He's so uncomfortable, but he's doing it, and he found he's a way. It. He's so uncomfortable with it, but he's doing it. But he's so. not closing his ear. He's not putting tape over his eyes. Like he he knows he knows what's going on, and he found a way that he. Can. Oh, by the way, my favorite part about this class is that your parents are laughing when I'm talking. That makes me very happy. Um, that that they are they're finding a way to make it work, and that's you know that's important that they can that he can be a little uncomfortable with something that he knows is actually okay in the way that they're doing it. I think putting tape over your eyes is also like a... Stop on your It inspired very different reactions because some people were like, this is awful, which is like yes. my shots. That is and some were like, oh, yeah. this is... All these women came to hear him sing and he wanted to perform without being... You know, he didn't want to impose anything and say, I can't play because you're dancing. No, you don't like it. I like it. You're wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> but it's okay. It's fine. You can be wrong. I can be right. It's okay. We can move yeah. on. <laughs> um, any final questions before we break for the night? That's a great place to end. I was right. You're wrong. We should end on that note. <laughs> Yonatan Rezel is great, by the way. You should all listen to Yonatan Rezel. He is great. He is great. <laughs> I have a I have a bit of trivia. The woman who played Shira, she was actually one of the stars of um the the show um Mossad 101 about uh, it was a uh, uh somewhat satirical semi-serious uh takeoff on the Mossad and she played a psychologist um and that was in 2000 I think uh 15 as opposed to this is 2009 when the, in Shugin Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw the Friedmans raise their hand. They... Uh, hi, I, I had a slight a question as a slight tangent over here about Torah reading and the synagogue. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding that in the synagogue you're required to read Torah every week. 
I have an acquaintance who was an Orthodox rabbi in uh, newly minted Orthodox rabbi in Sacramento. And a couple of years ago, when there were some severe fires nearby, they couldn't hold Shabbat services and they actually canceled the services. And they were, he was trying to figure out what they were supposed to do since they couldn't read the Torah on Shabbat. And now, of course, with COVID, you have lots of synagogues that uh, can't meet or not supposed to be meeting. And I'm just wondering what the obligation is about in terms of reading Torah in the synagogue and how you get around that problem. Great. So the, I can answer that. The obligation to read Torah is an obligation on the kahal. It's an obligation on the community. A kahal only exists when there is a group of, when there's a minion, when there's a group of, you know, in an Orthodox context, 10 men. So there actually isn't an obligation to read Torah if there isn't a kahal, if there isn't a minion. Um, So if you have a minion on Shabbat and you don't read Torah, that's a problem. If you don't have a minion, it's actually not an issue to read, to not read Torah, because there's, there's no minion that, you know, the obligation only exists once the minion is there. Now, with that said, there's an idea, you know, when there's like an established troll or an established minion, that even if they don't have a minion one week, like there's still an established group who's who's coming back together. So this was a source of, I don't know if in um, Rabbi Schatz in in the conservative world, but certainly was a topic of a lot of conversation in the Orthodox world, because in theory, what you're supposed to do is if you, if there's sort of an established synagogue that can't meet for an, you know for a week because of whatever reason they can't read Torah. They're supposed to make it up the following week, and the first aliyah is the entire previous week's parsha plus the first aliyah. So you have like a whole Torah reading plus you know plus an aliyah as as Rishon, it's the first aliyah, and then the rest of the Torah reading goes as normal. That's in theory what you're supposed to do. Now when you miss like five months of you know of services. What do you do about that? So that's where we pull out the the great Tircha de Tzibora line uh, that it's a, what's the good translation for Tircha? It's a a burden on the community. It's a burden on the community. And so basically we don't do that. But if it was one week, like there are places that if they they missed one week, they would actually make it up the following week and just do a double Parsha. But to like- There's still be a Tircha after one week. It'd still be a Tircha. It's also a Tircha after one week. It's definitely a Tircha after- all of Vaikra and Bamidbar and, you know, half of Devarim, yeah. So. I think, Leonard, the, the interesting thing that Rai, that Rai Pernick is pointing out is that um, even though we might feel like we are a community, no matter if we are meeting in person or not, a kahal is defined by actually being in the same place with a minion. So, you know, we call one another a community and we feel very communal, but in terms of the definition of kahal, for a mitzvah, you have to have a minion to be able to do it, which is why at Temple Bethlehem, for example, we're not reading Torah out of a scroll and haven't for many, many months. But the one thing that we are doing is we have given Torah scrolls to different homes that are having backyard minyanim and they are reading Torah. So in a way, our kahal is reading Torah when they're gathering um, in the backyard minyan. Okay, that's a good ending point. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.